A little bit of technical stuff here first. All of the scriptures function uh, in one of five ways, kind of five types of literature we see in all of the scriptures. In the first of which, I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking on in just a second, the first type of literature is called a myth. Now, usually when we think of a myth, a lot of times we think of a story that is untrue, uh, but it, you know, it, it might teach a moral or something really important and either scary or good. You know, Loch Ness Monster, real or myth? You know, so it's, but in the scriptures, when we talk about a myth, we're not talking about an untrue story. We're talking about a type of literature that either creates a story or uses a story, greatly romanticized or enhanced, for the purpose of teaching a world view. In other words, this is how we look at the world. This is how we have become what we've become. This is why we believe what we believe. You know, in many ways, that's how the book of Genesis functions. That it tells us, you know, how the world came to be, and it's not so much step by step how it came to be, but, but how it came to be. It came to be because of God. Well, then why did God create us? You know, and then, you know, God saw that it was good. But sin came in the world. Well, where sin came from? So, you know, Genesis works its way through, in, through teaching all of us, Jewish people, but now all of us, about our fundamental vision. We call that a founding myth. And, there, and those founding myths are incredibly important. The next form of literature is called apology. Now, apologetic literature is not like, I'm saying sorry for something, rather it's another fancy word for teaching. Apologetics is the art of teaching. And so the next form of literature, if myth forms a worldview, then the apology literature teaches that worldview. And the next is called action. And action explores the worldview. You know, it just kind of explores, how's it working out? How do we see it in action? And a lot of the stuff we see Jesus doing is that, that form of literature. It's exploring, first, uh, he gives us apologetics, in other words, he teaches, and then we see it in action. And then there's another form, the next form, ugh, the name is escaping me, but it's, it's a type of literature that attacks, that attacks things. And it does so, you know, by twisting truth in many ways. But very purposely, and everybody recognizes what's happening. But its sole purpose is to attack a worldview. And we see Jesus doing that sometime. We see the prophets doing it a lot. That people have strayed from the founding myth and they're living sort of a different way, so they begin attacking a worldview. And then the fifth form is called parable. And a parable, which we're all familiar with, the whole purpose of a parable is to destroy a worldview. And, in, and when Jesus tells his parables in a true parable, he is truly trying to destroy something that the people see and believe. He has to do that in order to replace it with his law of love, with something new. And so all of the literature, you know, a lot of times when, you know, when I'm reading it professionally and writing, you know, articles for publication, got to keep all of that in mind. But let's go back to those 
founding myths because they are so incredibly important. You know, and we can look at our country and we have so many founding myths. Now, when I say myth, remember we're not talking about something that's untrue. We can look at all of the great moments of history, of our founding history. You know, everything from the Boston Tea Party to the desire for freedom, liberty from England. Uh, you know, we can look at Paul Revere and his midnight ride. You know, we look at Betsy Ross and the making of the flag. You know, we can look at the Revolutionary War and all the things that happened. Now, the real history is easy to get in touch with because they wrote everything down. So we can dig into the real history, both the, the grace and the warts. We can look at both of them. But a lot of the times, especially on the 4th of July, when we retell those stories, we enhance them, we idealize them, we romanticize them, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. Because what does it do? It creates for us a vision. And in our country's founding myths, you know, they create a vision of not what we were at the moment. They don't give us a vision or an idea of what we are right now, but they do give us a vision of what we're capable of becoming. You know, and the only time we get into trouble is when we stray from the vision. But, you know, tomorrow, it's all about that vision. It's all about that. You know, forget the stuff that's not going right. We got 364 days to raise Cain and to yell and scream and fuss and point out all the sins. But tomorrow, we want to look at the vision of what this country is meant to be. One nation under God liberty and justice for all, with rights, you know, for the pursuit of happiness, freedom of religion, you know, all of those good things. Now, have we achieved the vision? No, we haven't achieved it. That's why we still have the vision, so we know where we're supposed to be going. And we rejoice in the vision. When we look at our scripture today, it's doing exactly the same thing especially that passage from Isaiah that we began with, Israel has been in exile for about three generations. And then finally, in Babylon, is conquered by Persia, Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus doesn't want all of these, you know, they're not in slavery in exile, they're just other peoples have been resettled in, in Assyria. And so he sends them home where they should be. And they get back, and Jerusalem is in absolute ruins. The walls of, you know, the defensive walls have been destroyed. The Temple of Solomon has been destroyed. But it's interesting what Isaiah does. He doesn't focus on the mess they arrived in. He focuses on what they can turn it into. And, you know, we get things like a land you know, flowing with milk and honey, you know, a land that yields a bountiful increase. Now, all of these beautiful, beautiful and wonderful visions. Now, there is something in here, uh, just to be a little bit careful how I say this, so parents don't have to explain more to your children than you want to at this point. 
And it says, uh, you know, all of you have been mourning over Jerusalem. And then he says, oh, that you may suck fully of the milk of her comfort, that you may nurse with the light at her abundant breasts. Now, metaphorical language, sure, but not totally. When, and, you know, when we see a mother nursing uh, in public, in church, we get a little squeamish, a little nervous. You know, some people say, oh, they shouldn't do that. They should go so, yeah. But looking at our squeamishness about it, in the time of Isaiah, infant mortality rate was in the 80 percentile. So if you saw a mother nursing, a healthy mother with a healthy child, they weren't squeamish at all. They thought that was the greatest thing in the world. They saw a child that they knew was going to live. And so it gets referred to, that the whole metaphor gets referred to a lot as a way of saying, look how God has blessed us. You know, and, and they use a healthy mother and a healthy child to do that. And it goes on and on. As nurslings, you shall be carried in her arms and fondled in her lap. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. The vision, not just of what Jerusalem could become on earth, but also a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem that Jesus will refer to. You know, that's part of our foundational myth as Christians. This is what we want to become. This is what we want to see happen. You know, and so we look to that. It, you know, it's like, hey, we can spend a whole lot of time talking about what's not right. But in many ways, we do ourselves a disservice because we lose sight of the vision. Instead of looking at what's going wrong, we need to look at what's going right but what we can achieve. You know, and, and it's what Jesus is saying. You know, he sends those apostles out to preach, the 70, or 72, depending upon the translation we're reading. And they come back and say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. Now, they believe that names had power to them. And the apostles have realized with the name of Jesus, the world has changed. That even the demons are defeated. A vision, a vision, a vision. A vision that Jesus gave us. And that vision is summed up in one word. Kingdom. The kingdom of God. That's our Christian vision. That together, we keep the vision of, the, of a world the way it should be. Yeah, we've we got to fix the problems. But we keep our eyes focused on what should be. Because it's not just what it should be. Is if we embrace the vision, whether it's for our country or for Christianity and the kingdom, if we embrace the vision and keep it ever before us, it's not just what it should be. It's what one day it will be.